Welcome to another episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to the referendum on Scotland's future is underway. And in these podcasts, we're examining the choices for the Scottish public, looking at what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have, and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved, and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Andrew Wilson. Andrew is a founding partner of Charlotte Street Partners, an economist, a business analyst and public policy specialist, and he's a trustee of the Edinburgh International Culture Summit, Sistema Scotland, National Galleries Scotland, and the John Smith Centre for Public Service. He is, of course, one of the people who served on the Sustainable Growth Commission. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a director of Motherwell Football Club. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Drew, it's a pleasure to be here on Scotland's Choice podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a a delight. Uh, Andrew, I want to get straight into it. We've got a lot to cover today. COVID has been dominating our lives over the past couple of years. In your view, what have we learned from the economic impact of that? And how could that learning to be used for good effect in an independent Scotland? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think the big thing we have learned is that uh, the country and the world can mobilise to do great things. We have mobilised to vaccinate the population. We've mobilised to keep people safe. The First Minister has led a great response from Scotland in uh, horrible circumstances. The UK government have done a good job with the vaccination programme so we can learn to collaborate. The scientists around the world have collaborated. A- anything's possible really is the big lesson I suppose from, from from COVID. And the other big lesson is that there is a big role for government that's quite different from what the 1980s and 90s maybe taught us about a de, de minimis role for the state. And I think we need to think cleverly and carefully about the role of government, not just as we become independent and in building the new country, but in just how we fund ourselves, how we innovate, how we do big things to make ourselves equipped for facing down the big harms that COVID has accelerated, obviously climate change, but the inequalities, um, which are huge with COVID, worsened by COVID, um, the challenges of automation, artificial intelligence, and a big demographic time bomb that continues to tick. And I worry about how we fund public services longer term unless we think of more innovative ways to raise the cash that we need. So there's tons of things to learn from COVID. And, and much of it is really just about the quality of the human capabilities, spirit and innovation that, that, that people have brought. And, and this is clearly going to be a vital time in terms of the future effects for decades to come, the recovery from uh, COVID, isn't it? It's going to be very important for us to, uh, to be able to do as much as we can in order to make sure we put ourselves on a good footing. Yeah, very much. I mean, obviously, the economy has taken a beasting and people are pleased to see it bouncing back, which it has done in many respects. But what the bounce back is probably disguising at the moment are some areas, some areas by geography, by sector, by jobs, by community that have been hardest hit. And we know this, we know that some of it will not bounce back. You know, we know that there are structural changes that have resulted from COVID. And um, we also know that, you know, some of them are positive, you know, the, the, the increased use of digital um, the, the the fact that people are able to enjoy life closer to home, maybe more ecologically friendly, of course. Distances back, if you like, you know, people are 
um, are, are less likely to travel long haul than they were in the past. And these are big changes, but we knew that big changes were needed anyway. Climate change, inequality, the two big harms that we face at the moment. So we knew that change was coming and COVID has accelerated it. Indeed. Now, you were, we, we obviously believe that uh, Scotland would be best served by being an independent country. That's what this podcast is about, by talking about the differences with, between the system that we're currently under, what the opportunities are for uh, independence. But uh, to get there, we've got a cha- we're challenged on a number of different questions that uh, people are looking for answers on. One of those things is about currency for the future. Um, just remind us, what is the SNP policy for currency post-independence? Well, firstly, I should say that you know that the, the case for independence is born from the fact that you look around the world and some of the best performing countries, both in terms of the economy and in terms of society, are small advanced economies that Scotland can emulate very much. Um, one of the best facts I can think of is that if Scotland does choose to become independent, it will be the richest country ever to have become independent. And we should bear that in mind when mm. we consider the hurdles. But it's also true to say, Drew, that, that getting from A to B, as we saw with Brexit, it wouldn't be truthful to say to people that it would be simple and easy and that this isn't going to be a process that's hard. It is going to be hard work, but it will ultimately be worth it. And much of what we talk about, I think, has to be an honesty around what the transition will look like, how long it will take, and, and, and what it will mean. So currency is one of those questions which has become much more hotly debated than Certainly, I think it deserves to be. I remember speaking to the Irish government's representatives right at the start of the Growth Commission process and they bemoaned the fact that Scotland debated currency so much they didn't care about it. They said they were far more focused as a nation on getting the economy going. And and, and really, the SNP's policy is actually what Ireland did, which in, in Ireland's case, when they became independent, they kept sterling for about six years. Mm. And then they had created the punt and, and actually managed to keep the punt linked to sterling for a very long time before they uncoupled and joined the euro. And they did that for a whole variety of very good reasons that are still germane for us. The difference being, of course, that the world is a completely different place now than it was when Ireland became independent. The world's markets are much bigger, much more integrated, much more complicated. And Scotland is much more financially integrated with the rest of the UK than Ireland was Mm. in the um, first part of of the 20th century. So the currency policy is to retain sterling um, for the transition period as we become independent. That that doesn't change anything. It means that what happens just now happens the day after independence. And, and of course, no country becomes independent and immediately has a new currency the next day. That just doesn't well, happen. And, uh, it could, but it would bring a whole heap of its own yeah. um, challenges with it. I mean, Scotland you know, issues its own banknotes just now, but there are no banknotes in Scotland that are actually legal tender. The mm. quirk of history, the, the coins are mm. legal tender, but not the banknotes. So there's a lot of things said about currency and I think um, what we are doing there is we are accepting that sovereignty would on monetary policy remain with the Bank of England. That will suit us for a transition period anyway in my opinion and the big reason for thinking this way is that we want to manage for both the economic and political uncertainty that would come if we were going to move too quickly on currency. So if uh, you know the the, the risk would be that the, the, the currency would come into being and then quickly devalue, which would be most people in the market's expectation. And that would have an effect on people's income if they were waged from it for in sterling, or it would affect people's pensions or mortgages. It could be upside, it could be downside. The key thing is it would be uncertain. Mm. And the thing that we want to manage for is the risk of money leaving the country, capital flight, which for a new nation is a major risk. It happened to Quebec 
when they didn't even become independent and much of the money that left and the industries that followed didn't come back. So we're very concerned about that. We were very concerned about it in 2014, which is why um, the then First Minister stuck with the policy of currency union. And that wasn't sustainable um, um, now because, of course, the UK government has said they won't accept such a thing. So we accept um, that there are limits to this, that there are downsides, uh, of course, um, but the upsides are that you, you don't risk um, costs to the economy now. And if people thought that the currency was going to be different and it might devalue, they would be making real-world choices in advance of independence that could affect jobs, that could affect investment in the country. This never happened in 2014. There was no evidence of capital yeah. flight or foreign direct investment not coming in. And then so, so, fact, so over a period it, of time... In fact, sorry to, sorry to stop you there. In fact, investment continued and actually continued to grow after 2014. It really did, and yep. we were the best performing region outside of, uh, of the southeast and regions and nations. But the thing that, that, that um, we should also bear in mind is that everything links up. So the other thing that's really affected uh, by currency choices is, is your ability to fund your deficit. Mm. And all countries need to borrow, of course, for a whole variety of reasons. And we accept that there is a deficit, not as big as is made out, but we accept there is one that will need to be managed, and so it will need to be funded. And the point of that is that the money that would be funding that deficit would largely come from outside Scotland. There's not, um, you know, the, the, the markets that buy bonds are, are, are major international pensions uh, and other funds. So it would be a bond market, you know, countries of our scale would, would be looking to international investors to help fund us. The good news at the moment is that it's historically very cheap to do so. And so COVID proves that Scotland could fund whatever deficit we start with mm -hmm. um, at very low costs of borrowing. But if you were to introduce the risk of uh, currency fluctuations, then either the lender or the borrower, in this case, the government would need to bear the cost and the risk of that. So let's say the currency was to devalue by 10% or the investors thought it might, they would add 10% to the cost of borrowing in order to cover their risks or the Scottish government would need to bear it. The point being that you're adding an unnecessary uncertainty and risk for a new nation that's just going to the markets to borrow for the first time. Indeed. Far better to get your central bank set up. So that we want to have a central bank pretty much, um, you know, if, as soon as possible after independence, staffed by excellent people with the same responsibilities as central banks within the Eurozone might have just now around regulation for their financial institutions and information gathering and so on. Interest rates would still be set by the Bank of England um, for, for the transition period. And the six tests that we set up are really around judging whether or not the country is ready for its own currency. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of those tests is that we've got a central bank functioning, we can hurdle that very quickly. Another is that the ability to borrow and stability around the premium and the risk premium that we might be paying is stable uh, and that it would be in our interest. And I find it very difficult for anyone to argue that we should have a currency before it's in our interest Indeed. to do so. So that's what the six tests measure. Many people argue that they want to go more quickly. Well, the, the best way to go more quickly and to hurdle the test more quickly is to be successful, mm -hmm. to get your institutions set up, to get the economy motoring. You know, it's, it's quite interesting, Drew, many of the arguments put against independence are actually really criticisms of how we are governed just now. You know, the fact that we are so dependent on trade, yeah. uh, certainly in services with the rest of the UK, that was a problem Ireland had. It was 60-70% of their trade came to the United Kingdom before they joined the European Union. Now it's less than 10%. They've Indeed. diversified. The rest of the UK is a very slow-growing economy, has been in secular relative decline for many decades. So to be overly dependent on that is, is not good for your economy and is not ambitious. Well, since, However, since, it can hardly be 
you know, used yeah. as an argument against becoming independent. Well, part, of the, part of the reason for having your own currency would be in due course because it would be far more in your interest mm -hmm. to to uncouple and to and to and to uh, sell into a much broader, more diversified market. Well, since you've you've mentioned that, um, let, let's just talk about that so-called deficit that just now the nominal deficit how how reliable are the jurors figures in your view and, and do you find it a strange argument i think you touched on this a second ago do you find it a strange argument for unionists to use that scotland should couldn't be independent because of this deficit given that we have this position under the uk as it currently is well, that's right. It's a symbol of, so the deficit reflects the fundamental economic problem that the UK has, which everyone now accepts, which is one of the most regionally unequal countries in the industrialised world, possibly the worst. In other words, its growth model is the southeast does all of the growing, and therefore attracts like a magnet for talent, for, for money, for business. And, and, and the argument goes that handouts are given to the nations and regions in the form of, of subsidies. Um, uh, the GERS figures are reliable in as much as they are as close to an accurate measure of the situation as notionally applies now. But what they don't tell us is what it would be with independence, nor do they suggest that money actually leaves the rest of the UK and comes over the border to Scotland, because much of the costs that are applied to Scotland are actually just accountancy treatments for, for example, defence spending. Now, we know that we share um, the benefits of being you know, defended as part of the UK at present. We might choose, of course, in fact, we definitely would choose, of course, not to have nuclear weapons. Um, but, but the defence spending that takes place doesn't take place in the Scottish economy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, so similarly, you know, if we pay for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, that's money that goes to London or then goes abroad. Um, uh, much of the money that's spent on the civil service is spent, as you will know, in and around London on very expensive property, very expensive labour costs relative to Scotland. So this is this is money that's applied to Scotland, but we could choose to do things differently. And the best way to explain this is that at the moment, all the money we raise in tax is enough to pay for all of the Scottish government's competencies and policy responsibilities, plus all of social security and all of pensions. So the deficit is made in other areas, mm. chiefly in debt interest, and that's a big question as to what happens there. We can come on to it, uh, defence, foreign affairs, and many other areas. Now we would maybe choose to replicate many of them University research funding, for example, would be one I would definitely choose to to replicate, but others we may not. And I think we'll find that, that when we go through the negotiation, what we've suggested is in party policy is to have an annual solidarity payment, but it doesn't come from the rest of the UK to Scotland. It goes in the other direction. Mm. Now, this this uh, this upsets some people in the, the party <laughs> or the broader movement, just the idea of it. But when you think about it for more than a minute, what that's saying is actually we would agree to take on a share of debt interest which has been built up historically, to say that we wouldn't would be a show of, you know, bad faith going into negotiation. It doesn't, the, the exact share is still to be worked out because you've got to weigh up all the liabilities and all of the assets. Now, the UK's assets are about two and a half trillion, but the government's liabilities are four trillion and growing. Mm. So in actual fact, the independence negotiation would be less about Scotland arguing to get a share of assets. It would be more about the UK arguing that we should share some of the liabilities, that, debt interest, unfunded pensions, underfunded pensions, and so on. Yeah. So it shows that the power in that negotiation is actually quite well balanced and not just big party with small party. But the other thing politically in saying this is that you're also pointing up that you would go into negotiations in good faith. You're saying to the people of the rest of the UK, we recognise our responsibilities. How did Europe feel when, when the UK tried to put two fingers up and, said, and say, we're paying nothing? And of course, the UK eventually had to agree to pay something 
north of 40 billion in payments to the European Union. I can't remember the precise number. So we would go into those discussions showing that we were going to be responsible, recognising our responsibilities to people elsewhere in the UK. Politically, um, sorry, negotiation-wise, that's important, but also politically, because think about it, there are about, I don't know, maybe 700,000 people living in Scotland who are born outside of Scotland mm. who will have a vote in the referendum. There are almost a million first, second, third generation Scots living elsewhere in the UK and families talk to each other. So if we go in looking like we're surly, churlish, badly behaved, how might people consider our approach in a referendum? And let's remember, 2014 would have been won if it was only people born in Scotland whose votes counted. Now, of course, people born outside of Scotland have every right to vote and the same power of vote as, as people born here. But the point is, we lost the referendum amongst people who weren't born in Scotland but who now live here. So we've got to watch the tone of our arguments and make sure not, not, not only because it's the morally right thing to do, but politically it's clever if we take a better tone into the negotiations and, in the and UK of course, with Europe. And of course they've got little to lose because the JERS figures themselves show that Scotland already pays public service debt interest. In fact, I think so over the lifetime of JERS it's something like £130 billion. Pounds well, of course, paid. but you know, in the Growth Commission what we said was, well, there's a population share you could argue will pay you know, about 8.2%, whatever the population is at that time. But then you've got to see, well, actually, can we net off the assets that are not in Scotland that we've got a, a legitimate share of mm. that can't move? And so there's an argument there, and it sets up the negotiations well. And we'll see, and, and, and the point about the annual solidarity payment is, is as the economy grows and inflation uh, normalises, that it will become less and less important over time as a legacy. And, and we start day one with almost zero debt mm. and, and that, that allows us to separate the legacy payments for the past with the go-ahead funding of the new nation and the new state that we will need and we'll need to be ambitious about that because Scotland does need a different economic model if it's going to emulate Denmark, Finland, New Zealand like we argued with the Growth Commission. Again, I remember being criticised, um, there's so many uh, you know <laughs> people quick to criticise in Scotland, any, any new ideas, any challenges to orthodoxy, but do you remember everyone saying that, that New Zealand was a uh, a right-wing country that we ought not to emulate. And now we look at New Zealand as a, an exemplar under Jacinda Ahern as the mm. Prime Minister in a coalition with the Greens, um, run, running a country really, really very well. So so there's lots to learn from around the world, but getting the yeah. tone right uh, is going to be very important. The deficit, I would say, is an important issue. We do need to fund and we need to get our, our borrowing premium down so that we're paying as little interest on our debt as we possibly can. And that'll be an important Thing for the, the Scottish political scene to, to think about. That's why I'm in favour, I have to say, Drew, of the Scottish Government arguing now to get much enhanced borrowing power so that we can properly fund the investment we need to see us out of COVID. So I think the Scottish Government should now issue its own debt into the world markets at scale, many billions of pounds to fund the green transition, mm -hmm. to fund, fund net zero, to invest in the infrastructure, the housing, uh, the heating systems, the transport systems, the bridges, whatever it is we choose, the tunnels. If you listen to Angus Brendan McNeil, we should emulate the pharaohs and have tunnels all over the country. He has a good point. Mm. So, so we need to think big and ambitiously. Now, you go to, right now, if you were to travel to Loch Katrin, as you will know, north of Glasgow, which is an amazing scene, which the Victorians built to, to bring clean water into the heart of Glasgow, transforming the life, uh, living and health standards of the city. That was a massive project in its day. Um, you know, the fourth bridge, massive project in its day. We should be thinking at that scale now because the country's much richer now mm. than it was in Victorian times. 
So we should be having that level of ambition and funding it. So these these arguments all connect. They all the 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 deficit argument, the currency argument, the debt and the annual solidarity payment, the model you seek to become, all of these arguments connect. And we have to both be ambitious, mm. look to countries that we want to be like, but be honest with people as well about what it will take, how long it will take, what needs to be done, because you can see from Brexit how not to do it, which is to make it up, have policy on the hoof, no white paper, no plan, have a vote and then make it up as you go along. It's appalling what has and, happened. And, and, watch it, and watch it collapse as you go along, yes. And we must. Yeah. People of Scotland deserve us to go about this process in a very orderly fashion. Mm-hmm. Now, it might not be everyone's cup of tea. They might want you know, much more radical um, uh, policies overnight. I think we have to earn the right by putting the foundations in place for a future Scottish election to then decide you know, what should the role of government be? Should we be much more social democratic? Should we be much more socialist? What should we be? Should we be much more entrepreneurial? Choices can be made. And you can see around the world that there's no one correct model. Mm-hmm. Ireland's got a small government, very successful economy. Denmark's got a big government, very successful economy. It's about choice and democracy. But in order to be able to earn the right to build the country we want, we need to get the foundations in strongly. And that's what the Growth Commission and the party's policy allows us to do. There is, you know, there are those, most of the arguments about the Growth Commission are concerns about the deficit, which we can cover. And then the attack on the currency policy, really from people who think that the answer to all of our problems is the ability to print money. The evidence from around the world is not that the ability to print money creates economic salvation. In fact, the evidence from many countries is that it does the opposite. And and I, I do think that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm. And why why is modern monetary theory not practiced in any country at present? There's a there's a reason for it. And it's not because the markets and the banks fix democracies against the people. It's because it is a high risk policy for any country. It would be, I think, uh, very irresponsible for a new country like Scotland going into the debt markets for the first time to be devaluing our own currency uh, uh, in, in, in the face of them. It could cause dramatic problems for the new state. So we must avoid those who, the Pied Pipers of MMT are, I think, a danger to the national movement. So just to be clear, and I, I was clear when I read this at the time, but as you said, there was a lot of criticism around the Growth Commission. When it comes to the, the subject of the deficit, you were very clearly saying that investment in growth is the best way to deal with that. Well, I think it would be a legitimate criticism to say that the Growth Commission's report was too conservative on the deficit because what we, we people probably didn't read what we actually said because we were saying absent a change of you know, taxation or making choices like that, just assuming no change in that, assuming no change in the growth rate, we could still get the deficit in line with the Maastricht criteria, the, the stability pact criteria for joining the European Union in, 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 in an orderly fashion over five to 10 years, you know, without having to change growth rates or, or taxation. And we could do so without uh, austerity by gr- continuing to grow public spending just more slowly than cash growth in the economy. That was to illustrate that this is doable, eminently doable, mm-hmm. and that we would have to have a discipline about doing it. Otherwise, we'd end up paying more for our debt. And most people um, who, who analyse that, who understand the level of the argument, got that. But of course, what we've learned from COVID times is that priority right now for countries everywhere is investing for growth and recovery. Even the IMF, which is normally um, quite strict with countries when it comes to their deficits, argued last autumn in their fiscal report, their fiscal monitor, 
the country should be borrowing now, continuing to borrow to fund the recovery. And that is the priority for the coming period. And COVID, you know, one of the one of the myths that COVID has exploded is that Scotland couldn't fund its deficit mm-hmm. because countries are funding far bigger deficits than Scotland would have in normal times at historically low levels of interest. So so that that, that all is doable and doable. And intuitively for, for people just thinking about it who don't follow the detail of public finance, which is almost everyone, you know, look around. Scotland has its problems, of course we do. But but we're a top 30 economy in the world in terms of GDP per head. As I said, we would be the richest country ever to declare independence. Does it sound intuitively correct that Scotland's so badly run that we couldn't fund ourselves and that things would be disastrous? And I think the evidence from around Europe is that country, and what's Denmark got that we don't have other than a much, you know, better performing economy? You know, we've got financial services, we've got world-class investors, we've got a great education system, we've got great scientists, technologists, innovators, we've got food and drink and the natural economy to die for, the best renewables in, 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 in Europe. All of these are attributes that we know Scotland has and we've got a diaspora around the world that would want us to succeed. Yeah. If you're kind of making up a country yeah. that you'd want to start with, then you'd choose Scotland. You'd choose Scotland first. Like it. <laughs> it might not feel like it, but we've got so many things going for us. What we don't need, though, is to pretend that it's not going to be a challenge. Yeah. We, we learn and do the opposite. We are the antithesis of and antidote well, to well, the Brexiteers. We'll well, let, do it. Let's talk about that challenge because, as you say, there's been a relentless, if absolutely debunked, attempt to portray Scotland as too poor to be independent. Even David Cameron had to admit in the 2014 referendum that that was uh, nonsense and that, that was a... Uh, a bit of a breakthrough then but in a previous podcast with Alison Thewlis and Roger Mullen uh, Roger was making the point that he believed that Scotland couldn't afford not to be uh, independent what's your thoughts on that well it's 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 a great point because the counterfactual it's like change is always very difficult for anyone because you know on the whole what we did yesterday we tend to do today and we'll do tomorrow so 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 proving the future is very difficult but it's but it's a change and so it sounds like you know, it, 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 it could be more challenging and, and people don't like change as a, as a general rule in life. However, Roger's point's perfect because over the course of the post-war period, the, the, the pound is devalued and it reflects the fact that the UK economy has gone from first in the world to now 22nd on the IMF rankings and continues to go down the way. Now, the UK economy is performing well this year because of vaccine bounce back. But before COVID struck, the UK economy was entering recession and it continues to relatively decline. So if you continue to ha- you know, hitch your wagon to the UK economy in, in a Brexit environment where it's isolated from the biggest trading market we could have, then, then you're taking much more risk. The riskiest policy is doing nothing at present. In the face of climate change, in the face of inequality, in the face of Brexit, doing nothing is high risk. So just keeping going is the way we did yesterday is high risk. Mm-hmm. And, and just look around the whole of the UK, look at the burgeoning inequality, look at the pain being felt uh, by communities, and this will get worse as time goes on. So Roger's right, we, can't, we, we, we can afford to lurch on, of course we can, but things are not going to get better and we're never going to emulate New Zealand, Denmark and Finland if we continue to be a branch economy in a region of the UK happy on handouts which is what we're, you know, our opponents argue is what we get not yeah. good enough and you wouldn't no family in, that I know in the area I grew up in Lanarkshire no fa- every family would want 
their, their kids to have a, a better start to get to get employment get an education go off and make their way in life nobody wants to to, to not have that despite the challenges we faced with the closure of the, the steelworks that didn't have to happen mm. and the same is true for the country overall we want to be self-starting we want to improve our health improve our wealth improve our living standards and we're not going to do that to the same extent as Ireland, Finland, New Zealand, Denmark, if we keep doing things as we are now, because all the evidence is there, it isn't working. Well, my thanks to Andrew Wilson there. We'll have part two of this podcast next week, when I'll be asking Andrew about the financial aspects to rejoining the EU, the myths around Scotland's deficit, pensions, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.